Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 819 with Sarah Noel Wilson. Sarah has some excellent wisdom on how we can conquer our tendency toward avoidance, if that's something you may deal with. It certainly is for me. And the tremendous benefits that are on the other side of that. So you'll learn, one, the many consequences of avoiding conflict. Two, the key to overcoming avoidance. And three, how to train your body's fight or flight response when it pops up in those moments. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP819 and check out some of our goodies like the Gold Nugget emails, summaries, the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, every episode tagged by the topic and competency covered, the full text transcripts, a lot of goodies for you at awesomeatyourjob.com. And here's a little bit about Sarah. Through her work as an executive coach, an in-demand keynote speaker, researcher, contributor to Harvard Business Review, and best-selling author of Don't Feed the Elephants, Sarah Noel Wilson helps leaders close the gap between what they intend to do and the actual impact they make. She hosts the podcast Conversations on Conversations is certified in coactive coaching, conversational intelligence, and is a frequent guest lecturer at universities. In addition to work with organizations, Sarah is a passion advocate for mental health. With over 15 years in leadership development, Sarah earned a master's degree from Drake University in leadership development and a BA from the University of Northern Iowa in theater performance and theater education. When she isn't helping people build and rebuild relationships, she enjoys playing games with her husband, Nick, and cuddling with their fur baby, Sally. Big thanks to Sarah for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Sarah. Sarah, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Oh, me too. Well, I'm excited to hear about Don't Feed the Elephants, Overcoming the Art of Avoidance to Build Powerful Relationships. But first, we need to hear about you and your fondness for accordions. Some people picked up baking during the pandemic. I picked up uh, playing and collecting accordions. Collecting. How many do we have? Eight. Oh, three. <laughs> How much three. space does that take up in a home? Uh, a lot, because <laughs> they're not small and they come in these big suitcases. I didn't intend to buy eight. Three of them are actually broken, so I need to find homes for because uh, accordions are quite fragile. Does anyone like a broken accordion? <laughs> Any takers? <laughs> I mean, there's a market for accordion pieces. I had my grandpa's accordion. And I always wanted to learn it and then never had the opportunity. And I wanted to, this is actually the story. I wanted to cheer up my 
young neighbor whose birthday party got canceled when everything shut down. And so I serenaded him from his front yard. I mean, the six-year-old was not into it. He was just like, Mm -hmm. what's my weird neighbor doing? And then through a random chance on the internet, I got connected with one of the world's best accordion players who gave me some Mm -hmm. lessons during the pandemic. And then then I got a frozen shoulder, couldn't play for a year and a half, and now I'm back. Wow. Okay. Kudos. And so what makes the accordion special and fun when you're playing it for you? Yeah. It's a really beautiful question. The instrument is incredibly complicated because you have three different components you're thinking about, right? You have the keyboard on the one side, you have your bass notes, which are organized in a different order. It's chromatic, right? Or by fifths. And then you have the bellows. And so one thing that I love about playing is as somebody with ADHD, it's really hard. And as a business owner, there's very few tasks I can do where my brain can totally focus on one thing. And because of the complexity, it's it's a very much a point of self-care for me. Yeah. Also, it's just fun and quirky and people aren't, don't expect you to pull out the accordion. And the other thing is it became a place where my parents and I bonded virtually so they love, they love to hear me play. And so, so when I play, I think about them. So there's like an emotional component to it as well. There's a lot to that notion associated. It, it has sufficient complexity to completely absorb your thoughts and mm. thusly it's self-care. Yeah. And I've been seeing a lot of people saying things because I, I got so into this chess.com and cheating mm. allegations. Like, what's this chess.com all about? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it just that sucked me into this whole world. And that would seem to be a theme for a lot of people in the pandemic was with chess. It's like, oh, well, this absorbs all my thoughts and I'm not worrying about all this stuff Yeah. because I'm thinking about how the heck can I, I checkmate this guy in three moves? Is that even possible? Wait, let's try this. Let's try this. And then like, the brain is completely consumed with the puzzle. Yeah. It's like, like, I like to think of it as a snow globe that finally gets to settle Mm -hmm. and you just get to focus on one thing. And the problem is, is I've actually gotten better because I'm taking lessons from somebody who knows how to teach a beginner (laughs) because my friend who I met was like teaching me music theory on the second session. I was like, I just want to know what to do with these buttons. Yeah. But one night I was, I was playing and I was playing a song and I stopped and I looked over at my husband and I was like, Hey, you know, I was thinking about something with the business X, Y, and Z. He's like, oop, time out, time out. You're not playing complicated enough music if you're thinking about business at the same time. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I just want to make that observation. And so, but I can see that with chess because that's not just as simple as I'm making a move and now I'm waiting. You're you're looking at all the possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about your book. Yeah. Don't Feed the Elephants. Tell me, did you make any particularly surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries about conflict and avoidance when you were digging into this? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I love that question. When I started out on this path, I always lovingly say I'm a card-carrying member of the Conflict Avoidance Club. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up from families of conflict avoidance. And I was really interested in how do we have the conversation? And there's so many great books out there about things you can say and things you can do. And the thing that I, I started to notice in my journey of experimenting and trying to figure this out is that there wasn't a lot about how do we name and notice the avoidance. Because what I was seeing is that there was people who had, even when they had the tools of how to have the conversation, they were still avoiding it. And so so that took me on this trajectory of how do we get really curious about the avoidance so mm-hmm. that we can push through that and then then have the conversation. Yes. Well, I want to talk absolutely about how that's done. And maybe we could start with a little bit of why. Is avoidance okay? Sometimes. 
Is it working for us? Sometimes. How do we decode that? Like what's at stake here? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it is appropriate. And we have to understand that if we're if we're avoiding whether we're conscious of it or not, it's because we're coming from a place of protection. We're protecting ourselves. Maybe we're protecting others, which is still protecting ourselves. Maybe we're protecting our power. Maybe, right? We're in a we're in a place of protection. And one way I like to think of avoidance is through sort of the lens of there's aggressive, passive aggressive avoidance, right? Where I'm stonewalling, where I'm throwing the grenade as I leave the room, you know, and in those situations, it's like power over the situation, right? I'm trying to cause a reaction and then leave. Then there's fearful avoidance of, right, I'm afraid to be hurt. I'm afraid I'm going to be retaliated against. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. And then what does that mean about me? But then the third one that that I like to frame it up is, is conscious avoidance or disengagement. And maybe I might avoid a situation if I truly know that I'm not safe. I might avoid a situation because, I mean, we've all had moments where we go, that's just not a battle I want to pick right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe my energy is spent somewhere else. Maybe it's a relationship that's not as important to me. And I go, you know what? It's just, but the difference is conscious avoidance from my perspective is aggressive avoidance is power over, fearful avoidance is feeling powerless. Conscious avoidance is like power from within that I'm making the choice not to engage and I'm coming from a place of acceptance rather than fear or resignation. And so I think that's important because sometimes when people are getting excited about this work or other people's bodies of work of how do we have the conversation, they're like, got to have the conversation, got to free the elephant. And they get really aggressive about it. But sometimes it might actually be safer and better for us to not. Okay. But I want it to come from a place of choice instead of a default. That makes sense. As opposed to, that's too much, I'm overwhelmed, it's scary. Avoid, eject, evacuate. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of that just being like exactly or automatically where we go, that is one of several options at our disposal. And we will thoughtfully, conscientiously choose what works best for us. So now tell us, what is at stake or or what do we Mm. stand to lose if, if our default setting is to avoid conflict? Like we are chronically, consistently avoiding conflict, what will be the implications, consequences for us? So much. I mean, there's implications of our connections with others won't be as deep or as authentic. We can cause harm to relationships that we won't realize. The one of the ways I think about it is that the comfort we gain in the short term doesn't always outweigh the damage in the long term. I've seen organizations where when they are a culture of quote unquote harmony or niceness, a lot of problems are underneath the surface. And actually, I just had a client recently who said, you know, when we don't speak it out, we always act it out. Mm. I loved how he said that. And so that could be relationships, right? High quality, deep trusting relationships that can be from an organization perspective, we can be losing out on creativity and innovation and better ideas that psychological safety, but also on a personal level, if we're avoiding for some people, we also could be sacrificing ourselves in the process, right? Of not setting boundaries, of not being clear about what we need, not being able to communicate that. And that can have, I mean, that can erode your relationship with yourself and your relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so plenty is at stake there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then tell us, how do we <laughs> overcome that o- avoidance? <laughs> how do we find the courage? What's the process? Yeah. So the tools that we've put together, the framework we use, and I always I always say this as an and disclaimer, if you will, that humans are complex 
and relationships are complex and there isn't a one size fits all approach. Even if you and I have a really great relationship, maybe you're stressed about something and you're, you know, like you're in a different headspace or you're hangry or you're focused on something else. So I always say it's all about how many tools can we have at the ready so that we can bring it out. So one of the things that I recognized in the conversations and all the work that I was doing with individuals and even in my own experience is that a lot of times the reason we, one of the reasons we were avoiding is because we were thinking of the conversation as a confrontation. And I, and I think that how do we prepare people and how can we think about the situation differently so we can diffuse the heat for us? So we, you know, what I lay out in the book and what I firmly believe in is that one of the ways that we can approach these conversations so that we can have more courage is through curiosity. And the reason that curiosity is so important is a couple of things. So one of the things I noticed as a pattern is that when people were frustrated in a situation, they often just stayed frustrated and didn't really understand exactly why they were frustrated. And what we what we know about relationships is that if there is conflict, if there is a disagreement or tension, it's usually because a value of ours is being stepped on or a need is not being met, right? Mm-hmm. And so people weren't going to that level. The other thing that I observed is that people would rarely get curious about the other person. They were just busy being mad at them and not considering their perspective. And then finally, because we're talking about multiple you know, humans in relationship with each other, it was really hard for people to get curious about the role that they played. And and one of the things we know also about curiosity is that in order for us to be curious, that activates our higher functioning part of our brain, which calms down that right primitive amygdala brain that will get triggered when we're when we're feeling threatened in a situation. So our approach is we call it the curiosity first approach. And so it starts with getting curious with yourself. And that could be asking questions like, what am I feeling? What do I need in this situation? What information do I have? Don't I have? When we're talking about work in particular, and we're struggling with someone, this this comes up a lot when we're working with managers, is, is it a preference issue or is it a performance issue? Because sometimes mm. we confuse the two that I think you're not performing well because you're not doing it how I would want to do it. And so, so it's just taking a little bit of time to slow down, to unpack and go, what am I actually feeling? What and why am I feeling that way? And so here's what it can look like in practice is, you know, I was working with somebody and this is like a classic story that I think just demonstrates it so beautifully. He was a manager and, and one of his team members would interrupt anytime he'd have a conversation with someone in the area. So she would shout over the cubicle walls and interrupt. Mm-hmm. And it just drove him nuts. And he's like, I have to tell her to stop. And I said, yes, you do. But like, what is it about that? Like, what value of yours is being stepped on when she's doing that? And he thought about it for a moment and he went, I just, I think it's disrespectful, right? And then, then I invited him to get curious about her because I said, clearly she doesn't think she's being disrespectful. Mm-hmm. I said, what value of hers do you think she's honoring in this moment? And he was like, right away, he goes, oh, she, she thinks she's being helpful. Mm-hmm. And so now they could have a very different conversation around needs instead of just don't do that. So, so phase one is get curious with yourself and then it's get curious about the other when it makes sense. And the reason I say it like that is because we always say curiosity is an invitation, not a prescription. For example, I'm not going to ask somebody who's experienced harassment to get curious about their harasser. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's not going to be 
the ask. And then when we're going into the conversation, how can we approach it from being curious with them? And there's some strategies we lay out there. So it's very much anchored in how do we, how do we get clear about what's going on, get clear about what I'm feeling, get clear about what's the impact I want to make on this conversation, and then enter into it as a conversation instead of a confrontation. That's a lot of information. I just summed up most of the book for you. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and I like it that it's okay, curious, curious, curious in terms of the the running thread through it all. And so that's easy to remember as opposed to there's nine key principles. Right. Yeah. I guess I wonder even before we can get to that place of higher order emotional intellectual wise, calm <laughs> processing. <laughs> Thoughtful, yeah. If we're just angry. What? Yeah, I mean, so what? <laughs> and hurt. Like, yeah. how, is there sort of like a stop, drop, and roll or yeah, CPR yeah. Or, or first aid before we get into these wise thoughts just to yeah. be able to, to get a grip, to be able to go there? Yes. And for us, it's being able to notice and name in the moment when we're we've been triggered. And to build up that muscle to be like, oh, I am frustrated right now. And because you're right, you can't jump to that when that, you know, when that amygdala is triggered, there's no, we're not getting curious. And so, so for us, that's why a lot of our work is, is on helping people understand our biological stress reactions so we can start to see those in the moment. So then we can name it because I firmly believe and what I've observed is when we can see something and name it, then we can choose to change it. And so some strategies, right? One, when you notice you're getting emotionally triggered is deep breathing is really effective. And I always love to explain why, because we know breathing is helpful in a stressful situation, but it's literally because our organs are massaging the vagus nerve. It's the longest nerve in our body. And when we can massage that, that actually kicks off chemicals to calm down that sympathetic nervous system response, that fight, flight, freeze, fawn, flock response. And so deep breathing is really powerful. And what I love about breathing is it's free. And if we're lucky, it's always with us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I am a subscriber to the Breathwork app. So (laughs) I like all kinds of breathing things. Tell me, any finer points when it comes to deep breathing in terms of nose, mouth, counting, pace, Mm. diaphragm, or just any kind of deep breathing is just fine? I think any kind of deep breathing is fine, but if you are noticing you're particularly emotionally triggered, for me personally, I love the four, 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 just because it's really simple. I'm going to breathe in for four counts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold it for four counts, and then I'm going to exhale for four counts. And we can't get to that higher thinking if we don't realize that our brain has been flooded. And that can be tricky in the moment because the thing is sometimes what we hear people is like, I want to be able to have these conversations and not react, or I want to be able to have these conversations and not have the other person react. And it's really important for us to understand that that stress reaction happens so fast. I mean, our amygdala can flood our brain in 0.07 seconds. It happens so fast. So the goal isn't to remove the reaction. The goal is how quickly can we notice it so then we can work to try to recover so we can show up more intentionally. Mm-hmm. I can go on and on about the amygdala. It's my well, that's favorite. Good. Well, 0.7 seconds. I mean, I, yeah. I, whenever you have a precise number, it makes me think you know what you're talking about, Sarah. So. <laughs> you want a couple others, right? Like, <laughs> okay. The chemicals will peak in 18 minutes, but it actually can take up to 24 hours. 
for oh, our cortisol adrenaline to be hmm. metabolized, which is why I'm not a fan of like, we had this tough conversation. Let's figure out the solution. It's like, no, nope, my brain isn't there yet. I'm, I'm very pro go to bed mad, which like bucks every piece of advice you get on your wedding day, but to go to bed mm-hmm. consciously, intentionally <laughs> mad, to say, I'm not in the headspace right now. I need to give just some time for this to clear up. Let's talk about it tomorrow. Okay. And so we talked about first aid or CPR as the deep breathing in the moment. I'm curious, any prudent self-care strategies during the the 24 hours following the flooding? Yeah. I think that that looks different for different people. So I'm a big, big believer in figure out your personal manual, if you will. So for me, I know that going for walks and getting physically active is really helpful in helping me like settle that brain a bit so that I can access the higher functioning parts of our brain. Sometimes, and again, I'm just speaking from from my experience, but so physical activity can be really valuable. Depending on your situation, some kind of physical touch can be really valuable and calming. And one of the things that I want to just like talk about for a moment, because I think meetings after the meetings get a bad rep, right? We all like, oh, we got meetings after the meetings. But biologically, typically the first stress response we have is what we call a flock response. We flock to another human to be like, am I crazy? Did that just happen? And sometimes that can be unproductive, right? If I'm just coming to you to vent and to ruminate, that can be unhealthy and unproductive. But sometimes it can be a healthy response to say, I need to talk to someone else about this to get perspective, to help me navigate my emotions so I can get to a place on the other side. So if you have people with whom you can talk to, that can be really powerful too. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we talked about the the self-care and we mm-hmm. talked about the, the deep breathing. And when it comes to these levels of curiosity, are there any super questions you find to be particularly effective in, in surfacing that positive curious mojo? Yeah. I think for yourself, one of the most important questions is what do I need in this moment? We don't often, and this has been my experience with the work that we get an opportunity to, I feel like we get a front row view of humans and teams that we don't often think about it. We're just mad or we're just frustrated or we're just scared or whatever the case might be. But like, what do I need in this moment? So that one, it takes the the pointing of the fingers away from someone else to like, what do I need? So when I think about getting curious with yourself, I think that's a really important question. I think a hard question that is equally important is what role am I playing or did I play? Mm-hmm. And there might not be an answer to it, but a lot of times we likely have contributed to a situation. And so that's valuable. When I think about the question that I would want to ask about someone else. And when I talk about getting curious about someone, the goal isn't to fill in their story or to make assumptions. It's just to remind ourselves that they have a story, that they have a perspective on this. And so I I love the question, what makes sense to them? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes what can happen is we can get into when we're, when we are emotionally triggered and put into that protective state, we can jump to judgment like they're an idiot. I don't understand why they would do that. But we we all are walking around behaving in ways that make sense to ourselves. Okay. And then when I think about getting curious with, I think, again, 
one of the questions that we don't often think about, we just like, we ramp up for this conversation, we're feeling the, you know, apprehension or the nerves, or, or maybe we're feeling the fight, whatever it might be, is to ask yourself, what impact do I want to make with this conversation? What's the impact I want to make on you, on our relationship, on this moment, for me? Because maybe my impact is I want to set a boundary, which means that in order for me to do that, I need to be maybe more courageous. Maybe I want to repair, so I need to be more empathetic. And I think that we just like go into the conversation and we don't think about what's the impact I want to make. Not that you can totally control it. You can't, right? Mm-hmm. The other person gets to decide the impact ultimately, but it can calm us down. And what I love about that question is that at the end of the day, I can't control you and your reaction, but I can control how I'm going to show up. And so for me, if I'm going into a particularly heated conversation, and you know, I'm talking about this like all calm, but let's be real, my heart races and I'm stressed the night before and thinking about it. But sometimes, even if the result isn't what I hoped for, I always want to leave knowing I did my best and I showed up as intentionally as I could. Mm-hmm. That's good. Those would be the three questions. I like it. And if it's not us, but someone else who's avoiding conflict and yeah, we really do have to have that conversation or so it seems to us, any pro tips for engaging that person optimally? Yeah. So when I hear that, I think like, a situation where you two clearly need to talk. Like you need to ta- stop talking to me. But then I want to talk about how you could bring it up in a team. So I'm a big fan of sounds like you need to have a conversation with this person. What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And then leading them through. It's what I, I love about the curiosity first approach is you can use it for yourself or for someone else, right? So if they're coming to you and they're all fired up, yeah, like I can see you're mad. What's the need that you have right now that's not being met? Yeah, I can see that. What information do you think they're missing, right? That might be valuable or whatever the case might be. But encouraging, and there are times when, you know, I've had situations, and I'm sure I've been guilty. I mean, I've been guilty of this, but there are times where maybe someone's talking to you about a situation and it's the third or fourth time. Mm-hmm. And at some point, that's when there's, a, from my standpoint, a loving push of, I can see this is still bothering you. This is the third time you've brought it up with me. I'm actually not the one that can change this situation. Mm -hmm. And so one of the practices that I love that's from Marshall Goldsmith's work in his book Triggers is in any situation, we can accept it, we can adjust it, or we can avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so navigating that. If it's a situation where I feel like (laughs) I'm sensing, like, I think we need to talk about this. I mean, I'll just approach that. Hey, Can we talk about that meeting? I'm a big fan, especially if it's one-to-one, of coming at it from a place of, I want to hear your perspective, and I'd like to share with you mine. Because I want it to be an invitation for a conversation instead of just, hey, I want to tell you how terrible you were and blah, 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 blah. But to just say, hey, you know, I'd like to, would you be open? I also love that language. Would you be open to talking about that meeting? I'd like to hear your perspective, and I want to share with you mine. Well, you use one of my favorite phrases when you talked about, you said you like that language. And I would like to hear some of your favorite words and phrases in the course of these conversations that seem to be really handy and maybe some words and phrases that are troubling (laughs) and ought to be avoided. Uh, Anything that's always never (laughs) to avoid. Always never should, but. Yeah, but yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) And you do this and you always do this. Mm. You always should never. (laughs) Yeah, those are my, those are juicy. Some phrases that I like to have, and it depends on the situation. Okay, so let's talk. One of my favorite phrases to use when someone is getting heated, because again, there are times when I will fight and there are times when I will get into a full freeze mode. Mm-hmm. I love the practice of honor the emotion, but coach the behavior. And what that looks like is, hey, Pete, it's okay that you're upset right now. What's not okay is you keep interrupting me, mm-hmm. right? So like you honor the other person's emotions, but you're setting some boundaries on what's appropriate for us to talk about. I'm also just a big fan of tell me more. I think that so often, I don't think, I know this from like observing conversations day in, day out, is that sometimes we think we know what the other person means. And just like double clicking or just that's such a corporate phrase, but you know, Mm. just getting curious about, okay, when you said, when you said transparency, what did that mean to you? Or how would you define that? Or what would that look like in our relationship? Because a lot of times, Judith E. Glazer, she's a researcher that built a body of work, the conversational intelligence. And there was a study that she referenced that it's something like nine out of 10 conversations miss the mark. Hmm. And some of that is because we we think we understand each other. Like, yeah, yeah, you said this and and I said this and and that's I know what that means to me, but I don't actually clarify what that means to you. When I'm working on a team, I love using language of observation and then an invitation. I want to make an observation. I feel like we're dancing around X. Does any what is what do other people think? I'm on the balcony right now. That's that's language we use. I'm on the balcony right now, and I want to make an observation that we haven't heard from half of the group. And I'm curious about what we're missing out on because we're not hearing those voices. So I I love an, an observation because it's not as strong as just an accusation, and it invites people into the conversation in a safe way. Something that's a practice that I I wish I would love to see happen more. Oh wait. I have two more. Okay. okay so mm-hmm. I've got like a whole slew of them. This actually comes from my colleague, Jilmata uh, Villanova Mitchell, and it's asking for a do-over. So when a conversation doesn't go well and you know it and you just go, oof, I like stuck my foot in my mouth and I want to repair it. Sometimes we'll just leave it linger and hope it goes away and we pretend, pretend that it didn't happen. But she uses the language of like, I'd like to do a do-over. And a do-over isn't so I can reiterate my point of view. A do-over is so I can show up more intentionally. And I think that's that can be really, really powerful when you're trying to repair. Because courage isn't just when things are in conflict. We need courage when we're trying to repair or heal a relationship. I think I think one of the hardest things to do is to really honestly apologize when you've hurt somebody. That can be really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Sarah, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah. I think that people are so much more capable than I think we give ourselves credit to be able to hold steady. And so what I always lovingly say is practice won't make it easy, but it might make it easier. Okay. Well, I was about to ask for a favorite quote. That might be one. You got another? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. That's not mine. That's my quote. All right. My favorite quote is from the author, Minda Hartz, and she wrote the book, right within the memo. And the quote is, nobody will benefit from your caution, but many can benefit from your courage. Mm -hmm. That is on my mind and heart every single day in my work. All right. 
And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Dr. Tasha Yurick, her book, Insight. I love the study on self-awareness where, that they did that basically showed that like roughly 90% of people think they're highly self-aware and only about 10 to 15% are. And I think that's valuable for us to, I like to think instead of thinking I'm self-aware, now I think, how might I not be? Yeah. And a favorite book? The Waymakers by Tara J. Frank. It's Clearing a Path to Equity with Competence and Confidence. I think it's a really excellent book that offers tangible practices on how we can show up differently for those of us who are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. And a favorite tool? A tool that I like in my conversations, and this comes from the work of conversational intelligence, is understanding that all conversations dance in the space of transactional, positional, transformational. And once I understood that, I could show up very differently of knowing what the moment in the relationship needed. Mm-hmm. All right. I know what transactional is. Yeah. What's positional and what's transformational? So positional. So if transactional is uh, an exchange of information, telling, mm-hmm. selling, yelling, uh, positional is advocating and inquiring, and then transformational is sharing and discovering. Okay. That's good. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? The one I'm working on building is sleep because it's the domino that everything else falls from. So for me, it's doing things to have really good sleep and playing the accordion. That's also one of my favorite habits. That's good. I recently became aware of Crescent Health does uh, sleep coaching. That exists now. Fun fact. That's so interesting. (laughs) Love that. I'm going to add that to my list. It's the linchpin of mental health for me. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often? Two. People don't fear change, they fear loss. And the second one is you don't get to decide if you're trustworthy. The other person does. Those are the two that I hear the most. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, they can come to our website, sarahnollwilson.com. My name's on the site, but the team is behind it. Or if you want to connect personally, my DMs are always open. So I'm very active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I love, love to hear from folks. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. See if you can notice and name the emotional reaction. See if you can do the CPR we were talking about and take a deep breath and uh, to then make an intentional choice. So see if you can catch the amygdala flooding or hijack sometime this week. All right. Sarah, this has been a treat. Thank you. I wish you much luck with Don't Feed the Elephants and all your adventures. Thank you. I love what Sarah had to say about curiosity. That is a theme that's come up a few times. We got Kwame Christian talking about the compassionate curiosity framework, and that just comes up again and again as a great antidote to when you're feeling angry and ticked off at somebody, that is an approach that pays huge dividends. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP819. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. 
hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 